Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anu Arafat, Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Now, since we're coming close to the holiday season, we thought we would talk about some lighter topics today. Uh, so Naomi and I have challenged each other to come up with one of our favourite moments in Irish culture, history and politics. Uh, so you'll have to wait to find out what we have in store for you. Yes, in this episode, we invite you to gather around the fire, put on your coziest socks, grab a hot drink and curl up because we're going to be telling some of our favourite and quirkiest stories from Ireland. Mine is going to feature a bunch of unlikely Irish revolutionaries who go on a mishap-ridden trip in a yacht that ends up changing (laughs) Irish history. And I don't know what Tim's is about because he's told me nothing, but I've accidentally Ah. glanced at the top of his notes and it does seem to be about a rogue bishop and an airport, Tim. Yeah, well, if if you haven't got it from that, then (laughs) then you don't know, I think. So you'll have to wait and see. Uh, But it's a great story. Yeah, Can't wait. Mm. To start us off, though, we want to catch you up on a really heartwarming tale straight from one of our longtime listeners, Jeff and Javine from Chicago. Yeah, you might remember Jeff, uh, listeners, from our 2019 Christmas episode. Uh, He got in touch with us, describing himself as one of Ireland's quote-unquote banished babies. He was born in the Coombe Hospital and was then adopted through Catholic Charities to the United States. In recent years, Jeff has been rediscovering his Irish heritage and, indeed, his family. I was born in Dublin in the late 50s and adopted uh, out to America. And this year, I found my birth family. Jeff's mother wasn't married when he was born, but she did go on to marry his father later on, and they had four more children after that. That meant that when Jeff uploaded his DNA to a family research website and found matches to cousins, he ended up discovering he had no fewer than four siblings, not to mention numerous cousins, uncles, nieces, and nephews. When we first heard from Jeff, the plan was that the whole family was about to have a big reunion after all those decades of separation. But unfortunately, due to the pandemic, this had to be delayed. But good news, guys. Just last month, we received a new update from Jeff, and he gave us permission to share it with you. In summer 2021, he eventually managed to travel to Ireland for his sister's wedding. Here's the message that we received describing the big reunion. Tim, why don't you read this out for us? This is what Jeff says. He says... It was pretty magical. Many times I found myself sitting at a kitchen table, looking around at all these real Irish people and thinking, oh my God, this is my family. There were a number of long nights with Guinness and Jameson, a sister's wedding, hurling at Croke Park with a tragic Kilkenny loss, the first, second and third Pavlovas of my life, incredible seafood in Wexford, some minor assistance with cattle herding, Kilkenny and all its surrounds, churches both standing and crumbled, 
much time spent where I might have grown up had I stayed here, a stop by where I did live for 18 months, all of it in the company of folks that looked like me and called me brother or cousin or uncle. Stories of my mother's saintliness, my father's reserve, expressions of deep sadness of what my mother had to endure back then when Ireland was a different country, regret that you never got to know them, and over and over. Jeff, what the hell is going on over there in America, they'd say. I just told them that half of the country's insane. The only moments of stress were when we were trying to figure out how difficult it was going to be getting two Hurleys on the plane home. We decided correctly that this was an issue that Dublin Airport would be familiar with. That's it in a nutshell. Pretty great. So here I am entering my third Christmas season with these folks in my life. Congratulations to Jeff and all his family. That's a Christmas tearjerker for sure. Yeah, it really is. I, I have to admit, I got a little a little teary uh, reading Jeff's email. Uh, you know, it's been such a privilege to follow along with his journey for the last few years. And we couldn't be happier, Jeff, that your family has been reunited. We wish you the best of luck and many more happy reunions to come. take a minute to give a shout out to our great sponsors Irish at Heart. Irish at Heart is a subscription box service. Sign up via the link in our episode description and you'll receive a box of surprise Irish goods every month. Mm -hmm. Right now you can sign up to get January's box which will help you light up 2022. Uh, This box is inspired by the dozens of beautiful lighthouses dotted along Ireland's coastline. Expect a gorgeous selection of treats from some of Ireland's most serene and tranquil places. Perhaps something to eat, something to smell, something to wear that will recall the invigorating salty air of the Irish coast. These artisan products in the curated January box are valued at $67, but can be yours for as little as $48. And if you use the discount code IRISHPASSPORT at checkout, you get an extra 15% off your first delivery. How's that for good value? Indeed. And a nice gift idea too. So head on over to irish-at-heart.com. That's irishatheart.com with hyphens between each word. And you can sign up there. We'll put the address also in our show notes. Okay, Tim, let's get to our first story. So what quirk of Irish history and society are you going to tell us about? Okay, all right. Okay, now some of our listeners might know about this already because it's kind of notorious, but it's been a little while, so so I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people don't. Naomi, a lot of our episodes around this time of year are about airports. So I thought I would continue the tradition with this completely bonkers story that I'm bringing to you Mm -hmm. about the origins of Ireland West Airport which was opened in County Mayo on the 25th of October, 1985. Okay. This is a fairly busy airport. I'd imagine that lots of our listeners might have passed through it once or twice. Maybe you have yourself, Naomi? Have you ever flown into Knock Airport? I have flown into Knock Airport and I wouldn't describe it as busy. I I came in on a tiny plane from Dublin. It was so small that they had to rearrange us in the seats so that our weight (laughs) equally balanced out the plane and like one of its wings wasn't tipping down to the left. The whole thing sounded like a lawnmower. Like, you know, you almost (laughs) needed to have um, like uh, 
headphones on to block out the sound. Anyway, I'd say there was about maybe 12 of us on the flight and there, there was no division with the cockpit. So the drivers were just in there in the same space with us, uh, the, the pilots. Anyway, we landed down there and I was like, oh great, I'll just use the, the loo and then I'll go out. And I went in to use the loo and this guy comes knocking and he's like, hello, hello. And I was like, oh my God, what? And then he was like, oh, you're just the only person left in the airport. So I'm trying to, you know, call you to to leave because I've got to lock up the airport. Let's go home. I was like, what? <laughs> Well, okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, now, I mean, in relative terms, it is quite busy for the west of Ireland, Naomi. I, okay, I, um, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> knock is one thing, but I'm not sure if you've ever had the pleasure of discovering Galway Airport when that used to be open, which was literally a shed. <laughs> it was just a shed. There was a shed and, and a, a fairly a fairly dodgy runway. Um, so in comparison, this is actually a pretty busy airport. It, it uh, has transatlantic flights. Um, I don't know if it still does anymore, but it has had. And fairly regular traffic, m- multiple flights uh, around Europe every day. What do you know, Naomi, about the origins of that airport? Nothing, but I suspect because it's knock, mm-hmm. because a bishop was mentioned, mm-hmm. that it might be something to do with the visions of Mary that people had in knock that made it a pilgrimage site. Okay, bingo. So let's uh, get this straight. So the name knock just means hill. It's Knuck in Irish. And it's tiny. Like this is a tiny, tiny little village in North County Mayo. It's really just one street. Today, the area has a population of just under a thousand people. And uh, back in the 19th century, this would have been like one of the poorest parts of the country and also one of the worst affected by the Great Famine. And it was also an area that had very strong links to the land war movement and nationalist agitation. You know, the um, uh, lock mask house with the whole boycott affair was only down, down the road, really. But its claim to fame, as you say, really goes down to these apparitions. So, Naomi, mm-hmm. here's the story. It's a rainy night. On the 21st of August, 1879, two local women, both called Mary, were <laughs> they really were, Mary Byrne and Mary McLaughlin, were walking home through the village of Knock, when suddenly something caught their eye. In the dark, rainy night, an apparition appeared, a glowing apparition appeared on the gable of the church at Knock, and they saw the glowing figures of the Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and St. John the Evangelist. Three very random ones, really. I mean, <laughs> like, later on, the witnesses were asked, how did you know it was St. John the Evangelist? And they said, um, because he looks like the statue of St. John the Evangelist in the church. So this is like a hologram, right? They don't move. Okay. They don't speak. They're frozen in, in the air and they're just glowing, but like they don't disappear. So these two women stick around and they're staring at this hologram basically. And, you know, it's, it's staying around. At around the same time, there's a farmer who was about half a mile away and he saw independently, he witnessed a glow, a glowing orb of light across the field. Okay. So Mary and Mary run to tell everyone they know and about 25 people come back with them and they all see it too. So you have, you know, 30-ish people standing around, like, looking at this apparition, and they just stay there and, like, watch it for a while. They, they stay there for at least two hours. And the rain is not falling where the apparition is, Naomi, either. That's one of the, the other big oh. mm, miracle things about this. <laughs> anyway, there was enough people involved, basically, that the Catholic Church was kind of like, we better send someone to check this out because it's a lot of people have seen this now. So they sent out some investigators. They went through the evidence. They got witness statements, etc., etc. 
And basically, mm-hmm. after going over it all, they decided this was legitimate. Like this really They declared happened. it a miracle. They declared it a miracle. It was, it's a legit miracle. Still is today. So it just so happens that this particular apparition took place around the time that commercial newspapers were becoming really popular. This made headlines everywhere, all over the world. You know, Naomi, how people love a good Virgin Mary appearing to Irish people story. <laughs> oh, yeah. People love a Virgin Mary Mary appearing in general. Yeah. <laughs> it's a guaranteed seller. Around the same time as well, the rail lines, they were at their zenith, right? Like, so there, there was a rail line nearby. So people could travel to knock, you know, cheaply and quickly. And suddenly you get thousands of people, you know, pilgrims, mm. journalists, tourists, just flooding into this tiny, tiny, tiny little village. The mm. Catholic Church loves this attention. The, the local people love this attention. They start putting on prayer night vigils and processions and masses. They start opening shops and selling paraphernalia and stuff. And you can imagine like how a small village like this with very few prospects, you might you see dollar signs in their eyes when they suddenly get this windfall of international listeners. I mean, going back into like medieval times, getting getting a miracle or a saint is such a great like boon for your town because you're going to get all these pilgrimages. You know, it's like getting, you know, a huge boost for the local tourism, basically. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. This this became Knox thing. Now, let's fast forward about mm, 50, 50, 60 years. Interest has died down. Most of the original witnesses of the apparition were dead by this stage. But, you know, it was still a place of Catholic pilgrimage. It was the village's claim to fame. But Knock was really in a bad place. This area, like I said, had been wrecked by the famine. But then in the mid-20th century, it was wrecked by emigration. Still, the population was absolutely plummeting and things were pretty grim. Enter Naomi Monsignor James Horan. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but this is also melodramatic. Um, so uh, uh, this guy, James Horan, he was appointed parish priest of Knock in 1967. Okay. And he decided that it was high time to take advantage of this status as Knock being a site of miracles. Now, I want to take a moment, Naomi, and kind of consider the role of clergy in like local politics in mid-20th century Ireland. Like, we've talked mm-hmm. a lot about clergy in, in mid-20th century. We've talked mostly about oppression and authoritarianism and kind of these stern, mean priests doing terrible things and la la la, which was true. And it was, it's a huge part of, uh, of the legacy of all this. But that was just one part of this much broader, you know, role that clergy had to play in that they mm-hmm. were like a layer of hierarchy in society. So like, if if you ask me, this all comes from the 19th century when essentially while Ireland was part of the UK, it just wasn't being governed effectively, just wasn't really being governed at all. And that the clergy stepped into that role and basically governed Ireland instead because mm. nobody else cared like what was going on in these, especially in these villages in the middle of nowhere. And by the time Ireland got its independence, like your local priest, your local bishop, the local clergy, they were almost like mayors. Mm. Like they almost played the role of community spokespeople and they had a very entrenched role in that. You know, like this authoritarianism, this kind of like evil priest thing doing whatever they want stuff, that didn't come from nowhere. Mm. Like lots of countries are deeply Catholic and they, they don't have a clergy with this kind of political power, you know, like this, mm-hmm. this, the authority that the priests had came from the fact that they were actually really quite instrumental in the community in lots of ways. Mm. A really good, a good example of this is if you were like, let's say you were going to emigrate, you know, it wouldn't occur to you to go and see the local TD or the local county councillor. They're not going to help you and they're not going to care. You go to see the priest 
And the priest is pr- mm. going to set you up probably with a job and maybe somewhere to live. And by the time you get off the boat in New York or Chicago or whatever, another priest will be waiting there to meet you and bring you to your boarding house or whatever. You know, you were tapped into this yes. huge international organization that was... It's a network. It's right? a network. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the priests, on the one hand, they had this political significance. But on the other hand, that mm-hmm. political significance after independence, there was always this tension with the actual elected democratic government, right? Like the state, yeah. Yeah. So this whole scene that James Horan steps into is actually extremely political. Like I said, the West of Ireland was really deprived and it had been severely neglected by the independent Irish state after independence. The roads were terrible. The train lines had all been ripped up, the ones that were there. There was like no local industry, no jobs, no prospects for locals. And the whole place, you know, the whole of the West of Ireland was just covered in abandoned houses because people were moving away so quickly. Uh, so, and, you know, people felt this as well. People in the West of Ireland felt, and to a certain extent still feel, that the government didn't care. Any money in the public purse mm-hmm. was perceived to go straight to Dublin or to the wealthier towns and cities in the east. James Horan kind of decided to take these matters into his own hands. One thing he did, for instance, was he founded dance halls to give young people something to do. Nice. Nice move. Yeah, it's a cute little move, right? You know, in the, in the 60s, you can imagine how, how innocent all of this was. He also went, he actually went to America on fundraising missions. He would just raise money for his village in America. Instead of going to the government, you know, it was pretty much like the government's not going to give us roads or schools or anything. So right. I have to go and like raise funds in America. And he would bring thousands of pounds back to Mayo. So he was really popular. People loved him. And this was important. You know, having a popular priest was like having a, you know, a popular mm. mayor. In 1976, he says to the people of Knock, listen, we have these apparitions. We have this tradition. We need to make hay with this. So he starts building this mammoth basilica right in the middle of the village. And this, this thing is huge. It has a, it had a capacity for 10,000 people. Whoa. How, what's the population of Knock? Well, the population of Knock is, of Knock is less than a thousand. The population of County Mayo at that point was about a hundred thousand. So one tenth of the entire county could fit into that basilica. <laughs> anyway, he set up a museum, a new hotel complex, and a caravan park. And with, within no time at all, this one little street in the town was just bursting with, like, religious shops selling miniature statues of the Virgin Mary and religious medals. There were all these new services for pilgrims, like youth ministries and, like, sessions anointing the sick and, you know, things like that, right? Now, mm. he had something in mind, 1976, Naomi, because in three years' time, who was coming to visit Ireland? Oh, Pope John Paul was coming, right? Exactly. (laughs) He hoped he would come. He He hoped hoped he he would would come come to knock. James Horan was like, if we have a basilica, he has to come. We built this basilica just for him. Pope John Paul comes. He like makes a detour, says, better go and visit that basilica. Mm. Guess how many people showed up to see him speak? How many? Half a million people showed up in this tiny, tiny (laughs) village um, just to, to say hello to Pope John Paul. The shrine of Our Lady of Knock. Since I first learned of the centenary of this shrine, which is being celebrated this year, I have felt a strong desire to come here.
Wera, Nangros, Awahar, Vic, Jan, Go, Wera, Tu, Er, Mo, Las, Men. There you go. Build it and they will come. Build it and they will come. Now, he wasn't the only Pope to come. Pope Francis went in 2018 as well. And uh, Mother Teresa also visited Knock at some point. Anyway, this huge success, like, confirmed everything for James Hoare. And he was like, Knock is on the up and up. So he starts plotting his next big plan. <laughs> and what he wants okay. to do is transform Knock into a major site of pilgrimage, like Fatima or Lourdes, one of these yes. huge, big yeah. centres. Yes. Yeah. yeah, like these are places that attract millions of visitors every year. And of course, untold amounts of money come along with those visitors. Hmm. So the day after the papal visit in 1979, James Horne started a campaign to build an international airport in Knock. Now, let me be clear that from the Irish government's point of view, James Horne might as well have been proposing an international space station at Knock. <laughs> like this was <laughs> like, if... They had the money to build an airport, which they absolutely did not. They had no money to build any airport anywhere. But if they did, this was the absolute last choice they would have ever chosen. Like, this is the least populated region on the whole island. Also, there was already an international airport on the west coast in Shannon, which they had spent a fortune on uh, near mm -hmm. Limerick. So, you know, for them, they had done their job as regards the infrastructure, like, in the west of Ireland. Mm -hmm. However... James Warren was so popular at this point that he got this huge support from the local community and people started saying, you know, when are you getting the airport? When's the airport coming? You know, he had fired up this kind of political resentment in the West and people were saying, why shouldn't we have an airport? You know, actually, we actually don't have, you know, bloody anything. They're like, don't mock us. Yeah, don't mock us. And, you know, mm. we just attracted half a million people here. We got the Pope to come here. Why shouldn't we have a bloody airport? Um, so Horn starts yeah. to become like this kind of holy Robin Hood figure, like in this whole like, political <laughs> drama. And he starts using his position in the church to gain access to politicians. Now, this is one huge advantage mm -hmm. that local priests have. If a politician comes to town, you can demand to have lunch with them. You're the local priest, right? So he starts lobbying people to support the airport. And in particular, he sets his sight on the Taoiseach at the time, Charles Hockey. The infamous Charles Hahi, who we'll, we will talk about in future episodes. We will. Charles Hahi was a Mayo native. He was born in Mayo. So James Horne was like, aha, you're the one. And he was right because Charles Hahi realized immediately that this whole thing was really popular in Mayo. And if he kind of showed a little, little bit of leeway on this whole airport thing, that it would secure him a few votes in the next general election. Right. So he does this really sneaky thing, which is like so typical for, for Hahi. He gets the government to announce, quote unquote, approval in principle for an airport at Knock. It's like officially the government is saying, we think this is a great idea in principle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Like, effectively, he's just dodging the issue. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew the government had no intention of ever building this airport, but they could still say, oh, yes, we love the idea. We'll do some studies and we'll call you about it. You know, it costs nothing to agree in principle, right? Exactly. Right. You know, and then just wait out until everyone forgets about it. Also, this approval in principle was about an airport. That could have been any kind of airport. It could have just been a shed and a few meters mm -hmm. of concrete. <laughs> But James Horne knew exactly what was happening. 
And he decided to interpret that entirely differently. He decided to kind of call them on their bluff. <laughs> so <laughs> he gathers together a whole team of construction companies. Okay. And he tells them, well, the government has promised us all this money to build an airport, an international airport, actually. So start work and they'll pay you later. <gasps> oh, my God. So he just, like, started doing it. He just started building the airport. <laughs> <laughs> And not just any airport. He started building an international airport, like a really significant-sized airport with a two-kilometer runway capacity for mm. full-sized passenger jets uh, and everything. He started doing this before anyone even knew he was doing it. Like, the government didn't have a clue. Monsignor <laughs> Horan, what, what exactly is going on here? What do you think is going on? We're building an airport. And I hope the Department of Transport doesn't hear about it. Now, don't tell them. Just... And we're going to have it built in a very, very short time. You see the activity that's going on here. There's another load coming now. And uh, I think it's marvellous, aren't you? Are, are you being absolutely serious about what's going on and here? We have no money. But we're hoping to get it next week or the week after. You, you, you don't really have permission and you well, don't have money. I'm not sure whether I have permission or not. But I mean, I'm going ahead anyhow, just taking a chance. What? Like, how did he buy the land? How did he get planning permission? I've got so many questions. There's a lot of questions. Basically, well, he, he gets this construction company together. He also gets all these private contractors together. Uh, he gets the land because he tells people, you know, listen, we, um, we're going to build the airport. Does anyone want to, like, give us some land? Um, and there's lots of private mm. investors in the area who are thinking, well, the airport will be great mm. for us. So they invest. Even though mm. he had money. So he did have money to begin with. Like, he had nowhere near enough money to actually finish the airport. Yeah. When this came out, this whole thing was an unbelievable humiliation for the government. Right. Because remember, they had said that they approved of this, right? <laughs> so they couldn't back out of it. And they could, if they turned around and said, like, you have to stop, they would have to admit that they were lying, like, the first time around, mm. right? So to everyone's, like, astonishment, there's just this extraordinary spectacle of the government saying, Oh, yes! Um, yeah, the Air Force. Yeah, this is, uh, this is really happening, I suppose. <laughs> the whole thing became this public fiasco. The government ended up having to fork over 9.8 million pounds to fund the airport construction. They did not have this money. Like, this was a This huge... is the 70s, right? That's an enormous amount of money. It's an enormous amount of money. Now, listen, I looked up what it is today. So directly 9.0 million pounds in 1980 was is equivalent to 40 million euros in today's money. Okay. But also you don't build airports for 40 million euros anymore, you know? Like so okay. it's not really it's still not really equivalent, I suppose, really, when you're thinking about an airport, you know, probably closer to a billion. They gave over this money, that still wasn't half enough. While all this was happening, the civil service was going absolutely berserk. <laughs> Because they were like, hold on, we have done, like, no expert studies on this. Like, the, the site isn't appropriate at all for an airport to go here. It's in a bog. It's sinking slightly. <laughs> like, you can't, you can't build an airport here. And the public, like, hit the roof. You know, this is at a point where most people didn't have access to, like, local bus service. So you can imagine when they found out that all of this mm. tax money was being funneled into this white elephant airport for this weird religious theme park up in Mayo. You know, like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> so everyone is just going bonkers about this. Um, and in 1981, Fianna Fáil was kicked out. They were kicked out of okay. power, uh, partly because of this. And they were replaced with the coalition of Fine Gael and Labour. Now, Naomi, I'm going to, like 
go to your um to your good uh, summary of the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, spendy and religiousy and religiousy and spendy. What is it? Yeah, so I call Fianna Fáil more godly, more spendy, and Fine Gael less godly, less spendy. Right. Okay. So if you <laughs> if you think about it that way, Fianna Fáil, who are courting the Catholic vote anyway, and are yeah. maybe a bit more willing to give out this money. Finnegale was the absolute opposite. It was, you know, not courting the Catholic vote particularly, and certainly not up for wasting money. So they turned around and said, stop, stop, everyone stop. This is mad. Stop it right now. <laughs> <laughs> the airport, by the way, is half built. They said, listen, you can keep the money you already have, and you can build like a small airport if you like, or something, but we're not helping you anymore. You're not spending any more tax on this. This has gone way too far. So now politicians start to come out of the woodwork all over the place, and there's this huge split of people who support the airport and people who don't support the airport. And Hahi and Fianna Fáil come back onto the scene saying, you know, we stand for the ordinary people of County Mayo. We are, you know, we need to get this airport finished. Even worse, the whole fiasco gets international media attention. US TV stations started showing up and doing reports on this, like, public battle between, like, this village Irish priest and the Irish government. Again, amazing fodder for the media. <laughs> His name is James Horan, age 70. Monsignor Horan, parish priest of the village of Knock in the province of Connacht. Using a combination of guile, blarney, and faith, he has managed to get help for the village from tight-fisted authorities. But for years he had one wish, one idea he thought would put Knock on the map, an airport. Once he starts getting this media attention, James Horan, like, ramps up the whole thing. He goes out and announces, I'm going to make the rest of the money myself. I'll finance this myself if the government won't help me. Oh my God. So first of all, he sends out an appeal uh, through the post to every home in Ireland asking for donations to finish the oh airport. God. And loads of people give him money. Like he makes thousands, thousands, millions maybe uh, um, out of this. And then he sends his parishioners all over the world to go on TV and radio and make these huge big public calls for donations to finish the airport at Knock. So you have people in Australia, people in Canada, people in America, and they start raising millions, just millions um, from the Irish diaspora, basically. <laughs> you have to admire this guy. I mean, he was clearly batshit crazy. Mm. He sounds like he would have made a good CEO or something. Right? He, he, he was clearly a born yeah. politician. Yeah. Uh, this whole time, like, the government was saying, you know, the airport's not going ahead. Like, this is over, you know, and he's still making this happen somehow. Mm. Even something else that you really have to admire is, at every stage of the construction, it came in either at or under budget. That is impressive. Isn't that impressive? I mean, that's almost unthinkable yeah. today, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially in Ireland, we're used to these projects, n like, doubling, tripling, quadrupling in the budget. Yes. Like, that's the yes. norm. This came in at or under budget and, you know, the government really had no hand in it, which I suppose tells you quite a lot. He does it. He raises the money. A full international airport at Knock opened in record time just five years after construction began. And then three years later, the EU said, you know, you could expand this. And they gave him an extra million pounds <gasps> to oh like, finish off the project. Uh, a bit of regional funding just to... Just to cherry on the cake. Right, isn't it? Isn't it? So it's a very yeah. little sting, isn't it? And Horan became and remained a complete legend uh, in Mayo uh, after this. Uh, the songwriter Christy Moore wrote a ballad about him. There was even a musical written about this whole story. And like the airport did bring in huge amounts of money to the local economy, especially once the low budget airlines like Ryanair started taking off. 
it came into its own. Passenger numbers just climbed and climbed and climbed from, I think there were 200,000 a year in 1998 to over 800,000 a year to just before the pandemic. Like I said, you know, like I've flown in out of knock, you've flown in and out of knock, and I'd say a lot of our uh, listeners have. So that's my story, Naomi. I'm going to finish it on a, on a sad but kind of romantic and fitting note. Mm-hmm. James Horan died only a few months after the airport was completed. He was out on, in Lourdes on a pilgrimage and his ashes were flown back to Mayo on an Aer Lingus plane that flew into Knock Airport. Oh, Tim, what a good story. I loved good it. Story. Thank you. That's one for the book. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry I like shat all over Knock Airport just at the beginning to like kick us off. Like, sorry, like, <laughs> like real Dublin sneering. Like, oh my God, there was like one groundskeeper who came in looking for me so he could lock the airport up. Sorry about that, everybody. I'm going to tell my story now. Tim, it's about the Hoth gun running. Do you know about this episode of Irish history? I know nothing about it, Naomi. You know nothing about the Hoth gun gun running? Okay. I do, because I first took an interest (laughs) in this when I was about 15. And I, like, researched this and made it a school project. And I dug up all of these, like, original materials and stuff and spoke to local people who kind of knew about it and all this kind of thing. Mm. So it's been this sort of long-running interest of mine. And I actually created the Wikipedia page for it back in, like, the mid-2000s or something. So, yeah, it's been a a long, long long-running interest. But let's let's start off by setting the scene, okay? Okay. So the time is summer 1914, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the beginning of the First World War. It's just broken out, but nobody knows how long it's going to go on for. So at this point, nobody knows what the First World War is going to be. It doesn't have that name yet, let alone Mm. the Second World War. There's there's been no war of that scale, no sort of industrial-sized war. So it's it's kind of an innocent world, actually. It hasn't really kicked off yet Mm. to kind of sketch out this prelapsarian vision. It's (laughs) it's pre-war still. In the Irish context is that home rule for Ireland has been passed actually by Westminster. They've agreed right. to home rule after decades and decades of campaigning by Irish politicians. What home rule would mean is that an Irish parliament would be opened in Dublin again instead of Westminster, uh, mm-hmm. which had been since the Act of Union the only place of political representation. So it would be like Ireland would be sort of devolved, if you like, to speak in current terms, but still within the UK. But this act of home rule has been suspended for now because the war is breaking out and stuff. So there's a little bit of fear among Irish nationalists. They're like, is it going to really happen? It's kind of suspended. Uh, in the meantime, unionists in the north are really fiercely opposed to it and they're signing petitions you know they're gathering themselves they're organizing they swear that they'll fight it with force Mm. they start a volunteer group like organizing and marches and stuff and something called the 
Ulster Volunteer Force, and they smuggle in weapons to arm that militia group, right? Right. So there's this sort of ferment going on in Ireland. Down in the south, then, you have the Irish Volunteers, which are the southern counterpart to the Ulster Volunteers, and they're committed to upholding uh, home rule. And then in the midst of all this, you have something called the Curra Incident, the Curra incident isn't well remembered today, but at the time it was this sort of sensational scandal. It basically took place at the headquarters of the British Army in Ireland, down in the Curra, and it's kind of convoluted and it's, you know, intrigue and all of this stuff. But the long and short of it is, is that a load of British soldiers said that they would resign and basically not follow orders if they were told to enforce home rule, and that meant fighting against unionists. Mm. So because of this sort of little revolt among the British soldiers, Irish nationalists were like, we're not going to get this. We can't rely on Britain to actually enforce this because their army isn't going to actually put it in place. They became convinced that they would actually have to insist on it themselves mm-hmm. and that they actually needed arms themselves to enforce home rule. So they decided that they needed to run some arms into the country too, just like the Ulster volunteers had been happening. So that that all kicked off in about April 1914, this okay. this determination, this decision to get arms, and they started raising money for it. Um, just like uh, the priests that you were talking about, they were shaking the, uh, the the hat around or whatever, the bucket, and they were looking for donations to, to arm the Irish volunteers. The person who's at the centre of all of this, the fulcrum, if you like, is a woman called Alice Stopford Green. So she's born in Meath. She's a writer and historian. She's passionate about Irish history and very committed to Irish independence. And wherever she lived, she lived in Dublin and in London, her house was always a kind of salon, you know, where all the thinkers and the artists and the rebels would meet and mingle and so on. And um, all of them were sort of Anglo-Irish aristocrats, many of them, but very interested in the cultural revival that we've been talking about. So I'm getting middle upper mm, class from her double barrel name. Yeah, that's right. So she was the network at the, the heart of this, the fundraising and so on, putting people in contact. So... All of these meetings go on um, in Alice Stopford Green's living room mm. and a number of people are designated as the ones who are going to be the buyers of the guns, which is the first step. Um, who are they? The first character is Erskine Childers. Have you heard of Erskine Childers? Was he a president? Was he president once? This is confusing, right? This particular Erskine Childers is the first in a whole long line of people all called Erskine Childers who've all had roles in like 20th century Irish history. But this is Erskine Childers number one. And he wasn't a politician at this point. He oh, was a writer. I know what he and wrote. He was famous. I know what he wrote. What? The Riddle of the but Sands. He wrote The Riddle of the Sands. Exactly. <laughs> a famous spy novel. It's actually considered one of like the earliest of the spy novel genre, you know, which we would go on to have Bond and stuff like that. But it's actually set on a yacht. He gets the most from Alice Stopford Green. He teams up with a guy called Darren Figgis, another writer who's been living on like Ackle Island and joined the Irish Volunteers and he's the kind of link there. And they team up with Roger Casement. Yes, that's the Roger Casement. At this point, he's known as a retired British diplomat, famous for exposing colonial crimes in the Congo and South America. But at this moment in time, in 1914, he's getting more and more thickly involved in Irish revolution. Um, Mm. So... They get put in touch with uh, an arms dealer, a Belgian arms dealer. Happens to be exactly the same guy who sold the guns to the Ulster volunteers. Oh, for God's sake. (laughs) This arms dealer hooks them up. And the deal is that they have to collect these guns at a meeting point at like a buoy, uh, like a, a marker in the sea off the Belgian coast. 
And here is where Erskine Childers becomes very important, right? Because mm-hmm. you know the Riddle of the Sands is about a yacht, right? It's about a boat trip. He was a sailor. He had a yacht, right? He uh-huh. had a yacht and it, it was called the Asgard. It's kind of a pleasure yacht. Anyway, they decide to use this pleasure yacht to do the arms smuggling, okay? Right. So they all rendezvous, right? They rendezvous in Wales. That's where they start from with various crew members. So just to describe who's on this boat, there's two Irish-speaking sailors from Donegal, from a small island off of Donegal, called Patrick McGinley and Charles Duggan. There's Erskine Childers. There's his wife, Molly Childers. She's actually a well-born lady from Boston oh. uh, who was actually disabled due to a childhood accident. She could never um, walk unaided. And uh, their friend, Mary Spring Rice. She sounds delicious. Yeah, she was the British ambassador. Her dad was the British ambassador to Washington. Mary Spring Rice is an Anglo-Irish aristocrat born and raised in a liberal home in London who's just passionate about Irish culture and independence. And at this point, Tim, we switch to the viewpoint of Mary Spring Rice. Why is that? Because Mary Spring Rice kept a diary of events. She kept a diary of the boat trip day by day where they collected the guns. Mm-hmm. And she's like a witty, perceptive, like character observer and just recorder of events who's basically having a wild time on this boat. <laughs> uh, so this motley crew, right? Uh, they, they started off down the, down the coast and the first thing sort of jumps out is they had to collect this random, slightly random guy called Gordon Shepherd. It's unclear what he's doing on the boat. He's some friend of Erskine's and he doesn't really get mentioned that much except that from when Mary Spring Rice just like bitches about him. I don't know if you want, if you want to read this one, Tim. So they're racing to get down the coast so that they can make this rendezvous to, to pick up the guns. Okay, so this is Mary Spring Rice talking here. We all felt rather despairing and Mr. Gordon, who is a sort of cold water douche. <laughs> nice, Mary. Who is a sort of cold water douche in case any of us did get too optimistic, made an elaborate calculation to prove that we should certainly get to the rendezvous at Ruitigan too late. Here's another one. I'll read this one. She generally makes the breakfast in the mornings during this diary, okay? It's often her job to sort of wake people up. Here's what she says. All efforts to rouse Mr. Gordon proved in vain until a tin of golden syrup was got out. (laughs) On hearing this, he shut the saloon door and appeared in a surprisingly short time. After that, he actually sets himself up in like a bunk with the golden syrup, taking spoonfuls of it. And then he falls asleep and the golden syrup spills out all over the cabin and they have to clean Uh, it up, which sounds really annoying. uh, That's giving me anxiety, (laughs) Naomi. Uh, (laughs) Golden syrup spilt in a boat. Uh. I know. Stop, stop, stop. Um, They have to meet up with a guy called Connor O'Brien, who's actually traveling on another yacht uh, called the Mm. Kelpie. Why is there another yacht involved? Basically, this guy, Connor O'Brien, was like a really good sailor. That's the main thing about him. It's just really good sailor he was supposed to be coming with this like uh sort of aristocrat guy called de montmorency but apparently de montmorency spent one night on the boat and decided that he didn't like the ticking of the clock so he fecked off and sort of abandoned the whole gun running likely story (laughs) so anyway what happened then they had to rendezvous with conor o'brien at cows right Uh, where's cows by the way it's an english seaport town okay so they're traveling down the welsh coast towards belgium and unfortunately, he's there waiting for them for three days because they get delayed due to weather and stuff. Mm. And then finally, they do get into the harbour at Cowes. And I'm going to get you to read this account from the diary about the scene as uh, Connor discovers their boat coming in late. Okay. 
A loud Asgard ahoy was heard, and I dashed up on deck to be received with a torrent of abuse from Connor. Why were we so late? Why had we never written? He had spent all his money waiting for us, and de Montmorency had gone back to Dublin. I found to my horror that Connor had been sending a series of wild telegrams to Mrs. Green via de Montmorency, asking her where we were. If all cows and Dublin, not to say the castle, do not know of our expedition, it is a miracle. The only hope is the government are fairly stupid. <laughs> so basically this guy has been like, come on, we're, like they're in the middle of the secret like gun collection mission. And he started just like panicking, sending off telegrams. And of course, telegrams are monitored at this point. So yeah, that reference to, to the castle is, you know, where they have the headquarters of the intelligence operation, which is spying on Irish nationalists at this point from Dublin Castle. They are a disreputable party. She says, dizzy and reeling along the streets of cows because they're, they've got like sea legs. We spent rather harassing morning getting our letters and sending telegrams to Figgis at Hamburg with final directions and our rendezvous. We looked quite a quaint party, Molly and Erskine and I, driving around cows, whispering to each other, <laughs> sending prepaid wires and anxiously returning to the post office to the, for the answers. Uh, so this, uh, she actually spends all her money in cows, by the way. She runs out because she goes mad shopping, including buying a yachting cap, <laughs> whatever that is. Not the time, Mary. <laughs> she ends up having to borrow two shillings from Gordon, who she's just been like slagging off in her diary the whole time. <laughs> so anyway, they manage to all get on the sea in the end. So the two yachts are off. Uh, but of course, the weather's slightly against them. You know, the tide's going in the wrong direction. So they basically have to co to coast England to skirt England they're they're on the way to Belgium right and and sail really really near to the coast so that they don't don't get dragged in the wrong direction they're sailing along and in preparation for collecting the guns they basically start dismantling the yacht from the inside so they get out saws and hammers and everything oh and they're God. literally like chopping out the inside of the cabin like getting out the seats anything that's pre-installed like taking out the bunks cutting out any wood that can be got rid of just to make space for guns right so there's for this sawing and hammering and it's at this moment that she makes this observation I saw Folkestone Beach within a stone's throw away, full of the smart set. To the right of them then are these warships from the British Navy. And in the meantime, their crew, she says, is making an awful noise, chopping and sawing, which we devoutedly heard was not heard on either side. So they're sort of literally sawing their yacht up uh, in preparation for this like, gun running and like going between the aristocracy as they parade on the beach and these uh, warships that are um, just offshore. <laughs> so anyway, they go along and within about a day of that, they're at the Rutigan boy the rendezvous point uh -huh. and they turn up it's absolutely like foggy they can barely see molly childers apparently has the best eyesight so she's like the one who's who's told to scan the horizon and finally they see they're a little bit late again connor o'brien has got there before them and he's taken some of the guns and there's the tugboat which is full of weapons and german sailors and so then they tie up beside this massive boat and they start packing in the guns into the yacht right so here's her description. I found myself in the saloon with Mr. Gordon, Pat passing us down rifles through the skylight, and we were packing them in, butts at the end and barrels in the centre, as fast as we could. There's so little space for all of these guns that they have to throw away all the packaging. So they're like just chucking the straw and the wood boxes and stuff just over the side and trying to squeeze in all of the ammunition. 
And she says, I felt rather nervous as to the effect that this tremendous extra weight would have on the yacht in bad weather, but Erskine's one thought was to take everything. Molly put pieces of chocolates literally into our mouths as we worked and kept us going until about 2am the last box was heaved onto the deck and the last rifle shoved down the companion and the captain of the tug came on board to have a drink and consult where he would tow us to. There's a kind of a funny detail here as well. Some of the people get off a little bit early, right? She passes over some letters to him to basically create a fake backstory for herself because her dad doesn't know that she's on this yacht involved in a gun running. There's some fake story or something that she's told them. So she in, gives... In case word gets back to her family. Yeah, well, she has to create a false record of where she's been. So she gives letters to Daryl Figgis and tells him to post them at ports along the English coast so that there's like letters with a certain stamp of a particular post box going back to her mm. dad, mm-hmm. pretending where she's been. And she he ends up posting them all in Hendon, inland. She writes, of all the unlikely places for a person in a yacht to call at. <laughs> it doesn't quite work. <laughs> this is like a Shakespearean comedy or something (laughs) I know right I think this is why this story I like it so much it's because like they're like aristocrats mostly they're sort of on a jolly like half of them are women the whole thing is sort of full of humor and just like human detail it's just quirky Hmm. so she says we were going about 10 knots through a fortunately calm sea in a thick fog very low in the water the deck covered with boxes labeled patronen vo handwaffen hamburg remember this is the start of the first world war littered with straw and generally looking about as disreputable as we could. The whole thing seemed like a dream of the night, had I really spent the night handing down and stowing rifles. However, down below there was the solid reality. Saloon, cabin and passage were all built up two and a half feet high with guns and there was a, no illusion about the bruises one got as we as one crawled about on them. I was wondering whether they're going to sleep. Yeah, there's just guns up until there and then they just literally sleep on top of the guns. Not recommended, listeners. Not recommended. I'm pretty sure that's on the instructions. Apparently Molly Childers, who, you know, she's she's got mobility struggles anyway, she just finds it extremely hard to get about at this point. And mm. also Mary Spring Rice keeps describing how difficult it is to dress because like she's in all of this like Victoriana like <laughs> complex dresses and petticoats and stuff and she talks about like how hard it is to do her hair and like she's like <laughs> squatting down and all like it takes her very slow and gingerly trying to get her clothes on anyway More like six machine guns sticking into her lower back <laughs> like, the whole time. Yeah, exactly all her bruises from all of the rifles yeah Anyway, as they uh, as they sail back, she says, I sit in the cockpit and sew or read or learn Irish from Duggan and study oh. where we're going on the chart. So they're doing Irish lessons as they go along. Duolingo. And here, Tim, is where things get a bit scary, actually. Hmm. So they were just beating along past Devonport, right? And they end up passing through the entire Royal Navy fleet. <laughs> this actually sounds like exactly fitting. Like, this is... This is... <laughs> 
I'm not surprised by this at all, considering what we've been through already. This gormless yacht sails through the entire Navy fleet of the British Army, which is just like on a maneuver at the start of World War One. And they're like terrified. One of them with like huge lights sails right up to them or it comes right up to them and they're like, shit, but then like turns away at the last minute. They think, they think they're going to get caught at every moment. Mm. So they're eating and sleeping and everything on top of the guns and they keep like spilling tea and stuff on them and then there's like this big faff faff and they have to clean them and all this stuff it's just funny she's funny human observation like Mm. she describes i think she's describing erskine childers in this way he's she says he has the, the habit common to everyone on board of starting to do something else just as the food is hot and ready oh. you know she's cooking for them listen i i hear yeah. you i hear you on this one this is something that really annoys me yes. when the food is hot in the plate and the person you have made it for just goes off and does something else for like 10 minutes and the food is stone cold by the time they get back it's infuriating stop it stop it it annoys me so much it annoys oh my me god so much. and it's so common yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's so common loads of people do it and like loads you're so proud of what you've just made them and now it tastes terrible anyway <laughs> so she ends up actually warming to gordon in the end having bitched about him um she actually warms to him they bond and he gets off a little bit early and she's sort of sad that he's not Aww. making the last leg of it it's like a rom-com yeah it's like a rom-com they sail into hoth harbor and her red skirt is the signal to the Irish volunteers Ooh. as to which the boat is. And they appear on the on the pier in Hoth Harbour and immediately start unloading the guns. It's all done in about 30 minutes because there's like hundreds of them. Hmm. Maybe a thousand Irish volunteers have turned up to meet this boat. Hmm. They've coordinated it well. Because some of them got off, right, in like cows, I think. Some of them got off and they must have gotten the ferry over or something. Anyway, they end up in, in Dublin before the yacht. So they're there to meet them and they've sort of organized these people that are going to collect the guns. Mm. The Coast Guard at this point actually spots them and comes over and they're like, hello, hello, hello. But the Irish volunteers have guns and there's like a thousand of them. So they just sort of like go away again and start sending (laughs) off like emergency flares. At this point, Mary Spring Rice goes off into central Dublin and has lunch at the Arts Club. And (laughs) uh, she... (laughs) I love the way none of this at any point has at all really impacted on their leisure activities. <laughs> you know, one must have the tea, even it's go- if it's going to spill on the gun. You know, it's like, time for my Irish lesson to see us sit on the guns. <laughs> Off to lunch then. It is three o'clock after all. Oh, sorry, go on. <laughs> so she's having lunch in the in the arts club. And uh, who does she run into but Mr. Craig? I don't know who Mr. Craig is, okay. but some, some acquaintance of her. And she writes, he asked me if I had been on the Kelpie which was the other at. No, she said, I've just been yachting with friends. In fact, I've just landed. My costume certainly required some explanation. I solemnly introduced Mr. Gordon as a yachting friend and we sat at tea and talked sailing shop as if no such thing as gun running had occurred. (laughs) So (laughs) they're there um, making nice in the nice restaurant there. At this point, the newspapers come in and they read them and they find out what's happened as a postscript to the landing, which was pretty tragic. Mm. It's almost a whole other story in itself. The Irish volunteers marched off with the guns towards Dublin, right? Maybe 10 kilometers or something from Hoth Harbour. And some British soldiers, I think, are they called the Scottish borderers? They know what's going on and they know that they are bringing in guns and they're like, hey, stop. But Darren Figgis and some other people 
um, who are leading the Irish volunteers sort of like engage them in discussions. Mm. And while they're engaged in discussions, the back of the ranks of the Irish volunteers hide away the guns in a garden of like a nearby religious institution. This is around like Griffith Avenue, Fairview, Clontarf, part of Dublin. And so when the British soldiers try and seize the guns, there's like none of them left. They've actually hidden them all mm. and while they were engaging in discussions with them. The British soldiers basically walk off empty-handed and humiliated and a crowd of like children and things are sort of like taunting them and like chucking like pebbles at them and stuff like that. And they get all the way into town and at Bachelor's Walk, they sort of lose patience or someone loses the rag or whatever happens. Anyway, they end up firing on the crowd and several oh people die. And it's called, yeah, it's called the Massacre of Bachelor's Walk. So by by the afternoon, anyway, Mary Spring Rice is reading about this in the newspaper in the arts club as this like terrible coda to what's happened. Mm. But all of the guns basically were successfully brought in. And there was even a song written about them called My Old Hoth Mauser because they went on to be used in the Easter Rising, um, including in the taking of the GPO. They were, by the way, they were like ancient, um, these guns. <laughs> they were from the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 71. <laughs> wow. So they were, they were like 50 years old. Yeah, really old rifles and like, you know, not great, but they were what was available and they, they were used in, in the Easter Rising. Um, so that's the story of the Hoth gun running. I can finish by saying a little bit about what became of our motley crew of characters who took part. Please do. Alice Stopford Green, who, the one who was receiving all the telegrams and sort of orchestrating everything and fundraising everything from her salon, uh, she got appointed to the Shannad in the new Free Irish State in 1922. Well done, Alice. Gordon Shepherd, the golden syrup eater, and late sleeper <laughs> and rom-com subject became the youngest brigadier general in the British army in World War One and died in battle in 1918. Oh no, Gordon. Gordon, yeah, very sad. Mary Spring Rice went on to allow her house to be an IRA safe house in the War of Independence and she died of tuberculosis in 1923. God, they all, they all died so young. Erskine Childers was part of the delegation that negotiated the Anglo-Irish Treaty, but he was actually fiercely opposed to it and mm. he ended up being executed in the Civil War in a very controversial episode by the wow. Free State. Molly, his wife, became involved with refugee relief in the First World War and in like women's peace organizations. And their son, Erskine Hamilton Childers, as you noted, Tim, ended up president of Ireland. What an amazing story. Yes. I want to note a coda as well about Darren Figgis because he's kind of written out of history mm. because he's sort of very important in all of this story, but he's one of those guys who you never hear of. And the reason is that it's just like a terrible tale of woe. Also in the early 1920s, his wife committed suicide. And then he had like a new partner who was younger than him, who was 21. And she was pregnant and she died. And it's unclear if she was sort of miscarrying and died miscarrying and that the baby had already passed. Anyway, in these circumstances, the public understood the manner of her death to mean that she died getting an illegal abortion, right? Hmm. She was 21. So this kind of like brought disgrace on Darren Figgis. 
that's kind of why he was forgotten. And then he ended up committing suicide. So it's just like a terrible oh tale God. of woe. Oh my God. Wow. God. I mean, every single one of these is such a dramatic little story attached to them. Bloody hell. I think Naomi, we're probably going to have to make like seven or eight actual episodes if we're going to explore those characters uh, even even a little bit further. Thanks so much for filling me in on the whole gun running. <laughs> what a lovely story time we've had. <laughs> yes. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in to this very special story time seasonal episode. <laughs> happy Christmas to everyone celebrating or not celebrating. Happy holidays. Nala kana yiv agus slong guys.